about to have a conversation with Winona Halter, who is uh, the executive director of Food and Water Watch, founder and executive director of Food and Water Watch. And you know these folks from our program. We've had them on folks from Food and Water Watch many times, almost weekly, it seems. And um, we've interviewed Winona several times as well, especially for her last book, Foodopoly. She has a new book out now called Fracopoly, The Battle for the Future of Energy and the Environment. And Winona, welcome back. Good to have you with us. I'm so glad to be here. So uh, let's just begin, I think, for our listeners who maybe have not read Foodopoly. Um, but the, and, and both of your books are opoly books, um, going back to the ancient Greek to figure out that term. Um, so what, to talk about the, the connection here, though, for our listeners between, between the original book that you wrote, Foodopoly, and now we have Fracopoly. Well, you know, we have a situation in the world today and certainly in our nation where almost every industry is dominated by just um, a few companies. And that's why I wrote Foodopoly, because agribusiness, uh, it's stunning the amount of um, consolidation, and it really affects our political system. It's not just about the price of food or commodities. When you have just a few companies with so much political power, they can write all of the rules and regulations and dominate the politics regarding their industry. And so I thought the same was true of oil and gas, and I really didn't realize how startling the control had been since the beginning of the 20th century until I did a lot of the research for this uh, for this book. And you traveled the country for this book, didn't you? Yeah, I did quite a bit of traveling. I interviewed a number of people. I really did a lot of research and tried to think out of the box about how did we actually end up with this system that we have to live with today where a handful of energy companies and as it turns out, the financial services industry are writing the future of the planet. And I do want to get to that because that's the critical piece of this is the financial services industry. We'll get to that in a minute. But I, I want to <clears throat> take a step back to the beginning of your book because uh, you spend the entire first part of your book giving us this history um, of where we come from uh, and you know whether it was the, your chapter on In the Beginning or Seeking the Roots of uh, Fracopoly. Um, and bringing us up to the present. So it's a very rich history with a lot of interesting characters in it. Um, You start by the man who actually began it, though he never made much on it, William Aaron Hart. But So take us through a little history about what this whole history of gas and oil in our world, why it's become so preeminent and where it began, the, the, the roots of it all. Well, you know, I think probably the most important history began at um, the time that the Civil War was over and there was an industrial boom beginning. And J.D. Rockefeller and some other um, interests figured out that oil was a good way to make light, processed oil, and I'm talking about kerosene. And by 1890, Rockefeller, under the guidance of his advisors and attorneys, had figured out how to roll up the oil industry and to control it. He controlled about 90% of it. He ran his competitors out of business. He was in bed with the railroads because you have to transport um, oil somehow. And he even had an uh, international operation. And one of the things that he did was Uh, really overcharge for kerosene and make a lot of people angry about uh, this very basic commodity that they needed. After the turn of the century, there was a lot written by those journalists known as muckrakers, people like uh, Ida Mae Tarbell, whose father had been ruined by Rockefeller. Uh, She did an expose that gained a very large readership. And this was about the time that Teddy Roosevelt came into office. 
And there was a lot of pressure to do something about the big trusts. And of course, Rockefeller's trust was Standard Oil. Now, most of us, at least those of us old enough to have had this in uh, high school and uh, maybe in college, learned that Rockefeller broke up the trust through a federal lawsuit and that Standard Oil uh, was uh, tamed. So you mean Roosevelt broke up the Roosevelt? Broke, Roosevelt, yeah. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Roosevelt yeah. broke up the uh, um, the Standard Oil Trust and some other big trusts. But what we didn't learn is that when Standard Oil was broken up, that Rockefeller and the other directors got to write the plan for breaking it up. And so the baby standards are the same uh, big giants that we deal with today. Half of the value went into the company that would eventually become Exxon. All of the other baby standards ended up reconsolidating. And in fact, there were seven giant major oil companies through most of the 20th century that really controlled the rules and regulations about uh, oil and uh, later natural gas production. And that's a really interesting story. And it is comprised of literally uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of mergers and acquisitions. And I'm always reminded when thinking about this history of uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, because you'll remember that Thomas Jefferson wanted to add freedom from monopoly to the Bill of Rights, and that Alexander Hamilton and the other uh, Federalists uh, that represented some of the banking interests didn't want to do that. And um, this is exactly the kind of political power that we've seen grow since uh, those earliest days. And even since I've written Fracopoly, a lot more information has come out about the scheming of these companies, which basically have known since the 1960s that climate change was the result of emissions. And that has come out from some documents that have been recently found uh, by the uh, Center for International Environmental Law. Um, they, these companies actually were hiring scientists to investigate the pollution from uh, emissions, uh, oil and gas emissions. That started in about 1928. They had a smoke and fumes committee. Uh, there's a meeting that's documented in uh, L.A. Uh, at the Chevron headquarters. And um, they continued to pay for research. And by 1968, were well acquainted with what was happening with climate change. So a lot of things right, What happened. year was that? Well, no, what did you say? What year? Uh, 1968. Right, right. I, I, thought, I thought you said something else. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought well, it was 1928, yeah. the, the committee, Smoke and right. Fumes Committee, began to meet. Right. But, and they began that research on climate change in the 1950s. But um, some very potent research came out at the end of the 60s. And to me, this is interesting. I mean, you, you spent a little time in the book um, looking at the history and, and the, we talk about the seven sisters in the oil company. I guess from the other parts of your book are also now down to five. But, but Right. The, right? Uh, yes, that's right. So, so the seven sisters, while they were making these deals all through the Middle East as the oil boom was going in the late 20s and early 30s, they were also building in America these gas pipelines. Yes. Uh, and, and building this gas industry here to fuel local utilities. So, I mean, to me, and, and that's really where the, the, from what I'm reading from your book, that's really where the, where the root of the, of the issue, but where, where, where it's like fracking's grandfather. Well, that's right. right? Well, um, a lot of the deregulation that has allowed the boom in fracking and the building of all these pipelines really has its roots uh, in the 1920s when the utility industry had a lot of bad behavior, a lot of the things that caused the uh, um, crash of the stock market. And when uh, FDR came into office, 
one of the most contentious pieces of legislation to pass was the Public Utility Holding Company Act that regulated the power industry, the electric industry that's now a partner in fracking. And uh, it restricted the size of electric utilities, restricted their service territory, um, said that they had to open their books to the Security Exchange Commission, said that they couldn't uh, gamble with ratepayers' money. And that really restricted uh, the electric utility industry over the next few decades, even though we know they did continue to engage in a lot of bad, bad behavior. At the same time, a few years later, in 1938, the uh, gas industry was regulated, and that was because um, the oil and gas industry was abusing consumers in the part of the parts of the country where people were using gas for heat. And they were able to regulate um, by having this, this agency, the Federal Power Commission, basically set the price of natural gas. And it was based on the cost of producing gas and then a very fair um, profit. So about 5.5 to 7% profit for the next 40 years. And then this agency also regulated pipelines and the building of pipelines. And it took getting rid of these rules um, and uh, some other deregulation to really jumpstart the industry that we see today. And those repeals took place um, over uh, the time between uh, the mid-1970s and 2005. Now, I thought as I was reading the book that, that this is, that's a really interesting ju- juxtaposition of time and what went on. I mean, when you write about it, as you, as you talked about 1938 when they passed the National Gas Act, which is what you were describing. Um, yeah. That, as you write, this got the oil uh, gas industry and oil industry very upset, and they and they launched a war that lasted well into the seventies to yes. deregulate their industry. I mean, it was, it was a real pitch battle. I mean, the way you describe it, I mean, you have this Rooseveltian period where where they have where, where the beginning of regulations happened to regulate industry. FDR, we're talking about the nineteen thirties, when the depression, and but but then this is kind of that 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 system of um, government that sort of sort of governed. Uh, the the uh, excesses of capitalism met real opposition from the capitalists themselves, and they fought this thing really hard, uh, as they were also building the technology to do things that would bring them more money. So I mean, it was really kind of uh, this, this. That's a really fa- it was a, a war that we didn't even see taking place. That took place at least the larger segment of population we didn't see take place. That's right. You know, it began immediately with uh, the uh, passage of the bill to regulate the utilities. I mean, any official that stood in the way of the electric or oil and gas industry was demonized, harassed. Uh, That period, uh, the McCarthy period, uh, these people were um, red-baited. It truly was a war, and it took place in Congress. And part of the research for doing this book was looking through literally thousands of pages of congressional testimony, because many times... Uh, between uh, when the industries were regulated and when they were deregulated, congressional uh, investigations were launched. People from these companies were called before Congress. And um, it it was definitely a war. It, It really could be made into a thriller. And, of course, eventually many of the people who were responsible for trying to regulate this industry. People like uh, Senator Phil Hart uh, died and the political pressure really after the Reagan administration came in and uh, all of the draconian things uh, began to happen to deregulate. You would never know that these uh, policy wars um, took place and the defamation that went with it of these really well-meaning federal officials. Uh, One of the people who comes to mind is Leland Olds, who was a federal power commissioner. Um, He was red-baited, and uh, eventually he lost his 
a position on the uh, Federal Power Commission. They couldn't get his uh, nomination back through Congress. I mean, it was it was really brutal. And the other thing you can see is that the speculation that the electric and the uh, oil and gas industry engaged in uh, in the 1920s and then the re-regulation, you can see how um, fighting that regulation that that prevented these industries from doing the kind of gambling on Wall Street that they engage in, how that has, it, it took all the way to the Clinton administration to finally get rid of uh, that type of regulation. So it is quite a story, and um, I really think it should be made into a movie because most people don't have the, the patience to really... Uh, uh, <laughs> Read the history. It's <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's just, we, the, the, that's why we have to learn to, to really uh, utilize uh, s- s- short videos and memes and nothing else we want and, and graphic stories to get this story out. I mean, you know, I think that people really want to grab a hold of it because people roll and run and they, re- they don't read. <laughs> and right. that's not a combination of people. It's just the reality, you know. So, um, and, and so, because it was really, as you write, it was between. <laughs> The end of the Carter administration and the Reagan administration, as you just mentioned, uh, that that the, the deregulation really took hold. Yeah, that's exactly right. right. Uh, and it was a bitter congressional battle. Uh, in the end, uh, the uh, Carter administration ended up um, kind of betraying those members of Congress who'd tried to uh, uh, fight this thing for years. There was an epic um, filibuster. Um, but deregulation happened over a period of years. It was it really didn't culminate until the Reagan administration when they fast tracked uh, the uh, natural gas deregulation, and of course the electric utilities began to be deregulated not too long after that. Through um, first of all through agency. Uh, deregulatory practices at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, because, of course, one of the things that happened during the Carter administration is that the Federal Power Commission that had regulated natural gas, although it had become fairly toothless, it was eliminated. And this new agency, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, was established as part of the Department of Energy. And a lot of people either aren't old enough or weren't born yet and don't remember that the Department of Energy was formed uh, by the Carter administration who came up with the idea and then enabling legislation passed. And that meant that all of the parts of the federal government that had a energy-related mission were sent over to this new uh, cabinet-level agency, the Department of Energy, and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is an independent agency, but it's situated uh, in DOE, and the president selects the commissioners. So that all began under the Carter administration, and then the wholesale deregulation uh, really went into effect uh, under the Reagan administration, and of course, that's when the antitrust laws were and basically eviscerated. Right, that's the word. So I, I want to talk about uh, um, uh, a few people here that you mentioned in the book um, that to give a, a personal sense of what what went on. And I'll, I'll end with Kendall A, but let me begin with some others um, that you write about to kind of give the story about how this actually occurred. Uh, you, you write about George Mitchell, right? Uh, let's start with him. Well, George Mitchell was a wildcatter. So the way that the industry operates is you have these big major companies uh, like Exxon or Chevron who control every um, aspect of uh, the oil and gas industry from drilling all the way down to retail. But often the actual oil or gas is found by um, these 
entrepreneurs who are called wildcatters, little operations that will take the risk, uh, go out and, and find oil and gas. And then they either get bought out by the big guys or uh, combine with the, the big guys in, in some way. And that's what happened with George Mitchell, who had, um, he had quite a history. And uh, he ended up being a billionaire, but it was really touch and go. And I would say that the thing that I remember the most about George Mitchell, who whose company is now part of Devon, Devon, which I have a chapter about. Yes. But he was a real risk taker. Many times he lost money, uh, and but he would uh, come back uh, either because of uh, luck or because he. Uh, he had a lot of stubborn uh, tenaciousness. And now we have to understand that the technologies that Mitchell used, most of those technologies were developed through taxpayer dollars. And um, then they were experimented with. And actually DOE paid for a lot of the early experiments uh, that Mitchell, uh, Mitchell did um, with fracking, and then he even had a um, a staff person who um, ended up figuring out some of the um, later technology needed in fracking. But I think what's kind of interesting about Mitchell is, you know, he was penniless. He uh, was the son of Greek immigrants, and um, he also was a speculator in land. And he ended up with a large percentage uh, of some uh, mineral rights of a big piece of um, property in the area that uh, it turns out has a lot of shale. And that's where he uh, worked doing this experimental uh, fracking. And eventually um, it paid off. He made a lot of money. He even started a foundation, the Cynthia George Mitchell Foundation, that uh, promotes natural gas as a bridge fuel. But um, it was this purchase of really cheap drilling rights in uh, uh, the part of Texas that has what's known as Barnett uh, Shale. And, um, you know, this became a uh, quite a boom for him. So you know there, there are people in here I think that that are really significant in terms of where this has gone, and and they play different roles. But I think that one name people will know, one people that some people may know, and another name people will not know. People like Aubrey McClendon, this Chesapeake Energy, who was married to an heiress, as you wrote about, and and had these deep political connections to oil and gas inside of his family, and then of course um, the name that is uh, um, in in our history for many people, which is. Uh, uh, the 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 the, 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 the man who, who brought us all the kind of hard things and died just before he was going getting ready to go to jail. So to, let's talk a bit about the, the, I mean this 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 is where this is where fracking begins. This is where fracking starts taking a hold. And these That's are the, right. these, these are the men that built it. That is exactly right. And ironically, they both died um, right. late, just as he was supposed to go to jail. And McClendon, as he was uh, um, seriously being uh, investigated uh, for securities fraud. So, you know, Lay is a um, real scoundrel, fascinating scoundrel. He got his start at the agency we were talking about earlier, the Federal Power Commission that regulated the electric industry. He was a uh, economist. And his um, mentor was a right-wing economist who was appointed to be a commissioner at the Federal Power Commission. And the, this commissioner had a, a life crisis with his wife and Lay uh, basically did his job for him. He figured out all of the ins and outs of how uh, energy 
is um, uh, basically uh, was being regulated. And you know, Ken is just the perfect, Ken Lay is the perfect example of one of those really selfish, greedy people. He actually ended up at the FPC, the Federal Power Commission, because he was um, escaping uh, going to Vietnam. Um, and he uh, then went to the Interior Department, and when he was at uh, um, the Interior Department, actually working um, for the Nixon administration, was when Nixon was opening up a lot of the um, uh, shore, the, the ocean um, territory for drilling, uh, Lay met um, who he would then go on to work for, uh, one of the um, big natural gas utilities, Florida um, gas company. Anyway, he ended up um, starting Enron, and he understood how to make gas something that wasn't just a fuel for heating, but to actually make it a, uh, a commodity. He recognized that um, the deregulation that was going on caused real uh, price volatility and that there would be an emerging spot market where gas could be purchased at a very low price. So he basically started this whole speculation on energy futures, trading on energy. And then, of course, uh, for Enron, he saw the um, the possibility of making money not by actually producing gas, piping gas. In fact, Enron sold off most of most of the pipelines that the company that um, he uh, turned into Enron had, and it was all about uh, manipulating the um, the price of both both gas and electricity. And of course, that's where he got into trouble with the big. Uh, blackouts in California. So he also started the real um, the move towards deregulating electricity. And I, I'm not sure that we would have the growth of uh, the fracking industry without the deregulation of electricity happening hand in hand. So um, before Ken Lay and before these deregulatory changes were made, electricity was basically something that was generated by a utility sold to its customers or another utility would generate electricity and sell it to a, a neighboring utility. There was not this whole um, huge wholesale market in electricity. So the idea was behind deregulation to create a wholesale um, market in electricity that could be gambled on in the stock market, that there would be new entrants coming into the uh, industry to generate electricity uh, that could be bought and sold and moved all around the country and uh, basically gambled on. And that, in a nutshell, was what deregulation was going to do. So that has happened, the wholesale deregulation. Now, Lay also wanted to see retail deregulation where, uh, and this is taking place in some states, where uh, supposedly there would be new companies uh, that would generate electricity and there would be a, a, a choice uh, between the companies that you could get your electricity from. This was going to be a a, um, a way that renewable energy was going to take off and there'd be all of this consumer choice, which, of course, has turned out to be a lot of um, bunk, uh, mostly. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I think that's one of the things that prompted me to write Fracopoly is, you know, I worked on a renewable energy project in the mid-1990s right. when we said renewables are ready and they were ready. They were already cost-efficient, uh, utility-scale wind, solar was coming down. But renewables never took off. And today, um, when I looked at the 2015 statistics, wind and solar are 5.1% 
of our electricity mix. And that is stunning. And that's what we have to change. And this deregulation of natural gas is focused on not allowing renewables or energy efficiency, which is the real bridge fuel, to uh, to take off and to really uh, be the underpinning of our economy and um, to lower emissions. So we're talking with Winona Howder, who is executive director uh, of Food and Water Watch and its founder as well. Uh, We're talking about her latest book, Fracopoly, The Battle for the Future of, of Energy and the Environment, here on The Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. And we're going to take a very short break and come right back with Winona Howder to talk about where we are now, the movements that have started against it, what happened in New York, other issues uh, that we may not be aware of, and what Winona Winona Howder was just talking about, which is how we do not use renewables. Are they feasible? We'll look at her ideas at the end of the book. We'll stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. I'm here with Winona Howder. She is the founder and executive director of Food and Water Watch, her latest book, Fracopoly, The Battle for the Future of Energy and the Environment. And Winona, picking up from where we left off, I think that well, there's a number of places we could start, but let me, let me start here. That, that, that fracking really began to take off, as we said, during the turn of the century, and it exploded. Um, and it became a political movement. One of the things you talk about in the book, though, that I think is important to touch on as this movement is exploding is the money that oil and gas companies and the energy companies in general were giving to the environmental movement where natural gas has become the bridge fuel to get us away from dirty coal, cleaner burning fuel, um, and that mix that in the public argument about gas is cleaner, let's go there uh, as fracking kind of takes off and deregulation has been instituted. So people are making billions of dollars on, on, on gas and oil in America. Well, that's right. You know, a lot of this does be- begin with the influencing of the environmental community And you mentioned um, Aubrey McClendon earlier. McClendon, who uh, founded uh, Chesapeake Energy, um, he was pretty brilliant in seeing how to manipulate the environmental community. And so when electricity deregulation was happening in the mid-1990s, he started seeing a way that his industry could benefit and started promoting uh, the idea that um, that it was an environmental um, that it was environmentally beneficial because of course we know when uh, natural gas is burnt it generates less uh, carbon unfortunately it's made of methane and uh, methane in the short term, is 87 times more potent greenhouse gas in the first 20 years after it's emitted, which is why we're so concerned about methane today. Carbon's in the atmosphere much longer, um, but methane in the the first uh, decade after it's uh, emitted is really dangerous. And of course, we need to take action about climate change immediately. And so that's the big problem uh, with methane. But McClendon was selling this idea that um, it was good for the environment. He had a lot of uh, support from environmental groups like the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, He um, gave the Sierra Club uh, millions under uh, Carl Pope, who Uh, of course, is gone from the Sierra Club now, Um, and really kind of bought the environmental community into the idea that if we get rid of coal, then natural gas will be a bridge fuel. And, uh, of course, that's nonsense um, because you can't have a bridge fuel that's methane. Um, But what McClendon did was go around over the uh, 90s, um, and after the, the turn of the 21st century, really selling uh, this idea that it was going to improve the environment. And, of course, 
McClendon was just a uh, huckster. I mean, he was a uh, a high priced um, scoundrel who um, really was interested in making money, and he was a big uh, big gambler. And it, it's kind of ironic because. He was the grand nephew of one of the characters that you were talking about that I highlight in the in the book. Um, he uh, his uncle, grand uncle, was uh, Oklahoma governor uh, Senator Kerr, who uh, founded the giant energy company Kerr McGee, and um, Kerr is now part of the fracking company Anadarko. But when he was in Congress in the uh, 40s, uh, what Kerr did was get a lot of breaks for the oil and gas industry, including uh, things like um, the uh, the tax break that companies get. It's called the golden gimmick, but an oil company that produces energy or produces oil in Saudi Arabia gets a tax break. So McClendon very much took after his uh, uncle Kerr, and um, he worked very much like George Mitchell, borrowed lots and lots of money, and had a heavily indebted company, uh, took it public, uh, there'd be an IPO process, he'd lose a lot of money, and then figure out how to come back by uh, borrowing more very high interest money, drilling wells, and then um, basically drilling a lot of the wells just so that he could then uh, sell, his company could sell uh, the mineral rights to these wells, uh, bundled up mineral rights uh, to foreign companies. So um, there were a lot of shenanigans going on at Chesapeake Energy. He was eventually kicked out of Chesapeake Energy, um, although he was being investigated uh, for his behavior there. And just in the last couple of weeks, um, the investigation of Chesapeake has uh, opened up again. So, so uh, you made one comment that, that I want to explore in a little depth for our listeners who, who may not really get what you one little sentence you just said within, within all that. And I think it's tied also directly to a question I want to bring up, pollution training and the battles that took place in and that have won, which I think we need to get to. We need to get into the spin about where we can take this. But you said methane cannot, cannot, cannot be used as a bridge. So talk about what – so, I mean, when people hear that. I mean, we, we again, we talk about gas as being relatively clean. People do. Right. So, what, so, what's, what, why, so what's wrong with methane? Well, what's wrong is that um, methane is a gas – uh, and natural gas is about 97% methane. It is um, colorless and odorless. And when it's emitted, it is very a very potent greenhouse gas. It stays in the atmosphere for about 20 years. And for uh, this period of time, it is on average 87 times a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon. So because we have emitted so many of these uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and we need to immediately reduce uh, what's being emitted, um, natural gas or methane is actually more dangerous in the short term than carbon. And here's the rub. EPA uh, a lot of the research that's been done on greenhouse gases, they use a 100-year time frame. That, that time frame has been around for a while, and uh, that is what generally is used. We, we need to be looking at what must be done in the next 10 or 15 years because we have emitted um, so much, so many emissions have gone into the atmosphere that we are reaching a point of no return, what's called a tipping point, where we might not be able to once again stabilize the climate because of the huge number of emissions that have um, that have um, well basically gone into the atmosphere. That's why we're so concerned about methane. We're concerned that EPA and other parts of 
uh, or federal government aren't looking at the leakages of methane from the entire infrastructure from well to all the way really to where it's being burned. Um, we believe, and there's lots of evidence, that uh, EPA has well, way undercounted the amount of leakages from the existing infrastructure. Now, you may remember that the uh, uh, Obama administration has um, put out some methane rules. Well, they grandfathered in all of the existing infrastructure. Um, and there, we don't believe that even if the um, infrastructure could be fixed, which would cost so much money that it's unlikely that the industry would ever invest in that, that it's possible to drill and to do uh, what they project over the next 40 years and not continue to have extremely dangerous uh, leakages. And, you know, uh, last night I saw uh, the mo new movie uh, um, um, about the um, BP oil um, blowout, Deep Horizon. And I was reminded once again, the industry, whether it's BP or one of the Exxon, they always cut, take shortcuts. And um, that's one of the real dangers that we're facing now with our climate. Uh, it's easy to talk about, uh, we're going to fix this and that, and it's not going to be any problem any longer. But when you look at the way the industry has operated, accidents are just the cost of doing business. And it's very frightening when our federal government is basically um, supporting um, what the industry is saying about leakages and about um, the ability um, to really um, keep methane from going up, emissions from going up into the atmosphere, because we simply know uh, it's it's not happening, and it's unlikely that it could happen. So, in the time we have left together, let, let me, I think it'd be important here to explore a couple things very quickly and then talk a bit about the, this what you talk about towards the end of the book about where we need to go and and that is victory is possible when you talk about New York and then you look through all the bunch of the states including you talk about Maryland and many of the states in the country where 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 there's this battle over whether we should allow fracking or not what happened in New York state um, as in some ways an example of what kind of organizing can actually do well, that's right. And, you know, at Food and Water Watch, we believe we're to a point in history where uh, people really want to fight for what they believe in. They're tired of fighting what for what seems po politically possible. So we became the um, first national organization to call for a ban on fracking in 2011. There were already plenty of grassroots groups working for a ban on fracking in New York. So we joined with some of those groups like Catskill Mountain Keeper, uh, Frack Action, Citizen Action, and we formed a coalition that ended up having about uh, 200 uh, organizations, many of them grassroots. We figured out who could really stop fracking in New York State? And, of course, it turned out to be Governor Cuomo. So we put together this campaign, multi-year campaign, that focused all of its activity on um, Governor Cuomo. The governor could literally go no place in the state uh, without being met by fracking activists. And there were plenty of other things. There were comment periods. There were many, many uh, different parts of the campaign, but they were all focused on Governor Cuomo. And um, one of the ways that we really um, were able to persuade and influence uh, the governor uh, in the, through these bird-dogging actions is uh, by making the case that public health was at risk. And, you know, since 2013, there are more than 550 um, scientific peer-reviewed studies that have come out showing different problems with fracking. And those studies that look at health, 94% of them show that there are impacts to people who live near fracking operations, wells, compressor stations, and um, 
um, the infrastructure. And that has been very compelling. And we think it's also going to be very compelling as activists go back in Maryland, uh, where there's a moratorium to fight for a, uh, a ban, because fracking can't be regulated. And um, really, we need to move into a future very quickly, where um, we keep oil and gas in the ground and really seriously pursue um, renewable energy and energy efficiency technology. So I'm curious, let's, let's pick up right here, since you just said keep fossil fuels in the ground. And so, so how do you explain or to, to people uh, listening here or anywhere else that people can wrestle with wanting to go to renewables, which you say now is at only 5.1%, um, and keep fossil fuels in the ground, you write about, and reinstate the oil export ban, discontinue uh, building fossil fuel infrastructure, including pipelines um, and, and plants, et cetera. So, I mean, how does that transition happen, though? I mean, A, there's a political struggle to change the, the nature of how we use energy. Talk about that. And B, there's also how do you do that, given the amount of money invested in fossil fuel and the amount of jobs tied to fossil fuel? Well, you know, I think that it requires a, a climate emergency uh, plan. And I think that we've even seen it uh, beginning to take root in this um, fairly miserable presidential campaign. That we're <laughs> and um, I think the fact that you saw in the, um, the fight over the Democratic nomination for president that fracking really – uh, scored uh, very high was that one of the major issues. You can see that this is beginning to be very important to people. I don't think there are any shortcuts to this. I think it starts at the local level, getting people involved in politics at the local level and the state level. I think that's what we're seeing uh, with fracking. It has to be very concrete. I mean, there are states like Florida that have now turned bad down bad uh, fracking legislation. About 70% of the population in Florida uh, has voted uh, locally, uh, either for a moratorium or ban. Um, I think that it's something that we have to uh, organize uh, at the state level for. Uh, and, you know, the 2018 uh, congressional elections. I think we have to start raising these in our state and local elections. We have to prepare for 2020 when there will be redistricting. I mean, one of the reasons we're in such poor shape in Congress today, and it's so difficult to get anything done, is that uh, not enough attention has been paid uh, to redistricting in the more than 30 states that uh, redistrict every 10 years and decide how uh, members of Congress are going to uh, um, um, be selected. So I think it's I think it's a battle, and I think we're going to have to push no matter who is elected. Um, it's going to be um, a real struggle of holding our elected officials accountable. I mean, we just can't afford to have a, a EPA that is not investigating the water and air pollution incidents that we know are happening from fossil fuels. And so um, I think what gives me hope is we don't need every single person to go out and get involved in politics. We need a critical mass of people to get involved, congressional district by congressional district. We need to bring up these candidates um, from the local level, uh, the excitement that we saw earlier in this election uh, cycle from the Bernie campaign, I think that can be taken and um, we can um, grow a movement that is already um, gaining momentum. And I think, you know, we can see what we need to do in states like Maryland. You know, Maryland, it's pretty disgusting, but there has been, uh, when you look at renewable energy last year, the biggest so-called renewable energy was black liquor from from uh, producing paper. We need to clean up these state mandates um, state by state and get real renewable energy mandates in place 
We need to really invest in energy efficiency. And some of that can be done at the local level by changing building codes. That's why I say we really need a, um, a, um, a mass mobilization, the kind of mobilization that put a person on the moon, uh, that a- allowed the, um, um, the nation and its allies to win World War II. I mean, that's really what we're going to have to do as we move forward. I, th- I think that, I mean, the, the, it would be really interesting to further discussions with you and others in the, in the coming months just about, A, how that movement is built and, and, yeah. and hearing people's stories across the country so they can hear each other talk about that, which we really would like to do here with you all. And, and B, is exploring how that transition looks, that, that emergency looks, emergency transition looks, because there are real issues that can come back. Uh, at and people who want to make the change, which has to do with people's jobs and livelihood, and how you survive in this transition, right. um, you know, and can we to even get to the transition? So I mean, it's a huge discussion, um, and I really hope that Winona, uh, how do we can get you back here to, with some others to really kind of wrestle with this stuff uh, over the coming months? Well, I will look forward to coming back because I think it goes way farther than just looking at energy. It, it, it needs to look at the structure of our economy, fairness, uh, income uh, equality, and how we're really going to um, re-regulate the financial services industry, a number of things, the tax code, um, because this is a very wealthy country, and there is a way that we can do the investment. The real jobs are going to come from energy efficiency, from building the new infrastructure needed for energy production. And um, that's really where we need to go. Winona Howder is founder and executive director of uh, Food and Water Watch. Uh, And Winona Howder has written this new book, Fracopoly, The Battle for the Future of Energy and the Environment. We'll be connecting to her speaking engagements as well as uh, to how you can get a hold of this book itself. Uh, Well worth the read. Uh, Winona is a really good writer. It can take a hard subject to make interesting and makes it interesting. Uh, Winona Howder, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast from Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>